What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. I am your host, Dan Pringle, and today we do a functional spotlight on the hip flexors. What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. I am your host, Dan Pringle. And uh, today, we're doing a functional spotlight on the hip flexors. So over the last little while, I have been scheduling twice a week Zoom calls with uh, unlimited numbers of people who, uh, who are interested. And the purpose of this is to engage people, to educate, to share knowledge. And, uh, and hopefully uh, get some valuable tools out of it that are going to help us think about the body differently, approach it differently, and uh, direct us in terms of learning new ideas and new concepts as well. And uh, so the first one that we recorded was, in fact, this one on hip flexors, which was a really great place for us to start. There are so many reasons that we have to rethink the way we understand hip flexors, from the terminology we use to the anatomy we recognize to its relationship to a lot of pain and movement-related problems. And so I, over the course of the, uh, the, the podcast, I actually break down a lot of those myths reinforce them with more accurate information. I use an anatomy app to help to dive specifically into the relevant structures. Some of the things that actually control the hip that we don't think of as hip flexors, but actually play a very similar role. And then talk a little bit about the physiology before answering some specific questions and uh, and even some specific cases around runners and dancers and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of really useful information that you're going to get out of this podcast, and it's a really a great way for you to put it all together and come up with your own understanding in a much more comprehensive way than before. As usual, we're doing these chats twice a week right now. Those are taking place at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesdays and Fridays. So if you're interested, please tune in. You can find me on Instagram at dpringle.physio, where there's going to be a live stream. You can reach me on, at YouTube at youtube.com slash D Pringle without an E, that's D-P-R-I-N-G-L. And you can also check me out at clinicalmastermind.com and email me at dan at clinicalmastermind.com. I'm looking forward to doing more of these. As you stay tuned, we're going to have podcasts and YouTube versions of each of the chats available. So make sure that you're checking those sites often and you're subscribed to both YouTube and the podcast. And again, follow my regular content on other social media platforms as well. And with that being said, please enjoy the podcast. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's kind of get started. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll be a lot more of a back and forth and conversation and questions and, and thoughts and stuff like that. Uh, hopefully we can break down a couple of myths and, and concepts that are, um, that are, you know, maybe not as accurate as, as, as we might hope. And at the same time, hopefully we can talk about some of the, the ideas and strategies that are actually more effective for what's going on. But, um, for those of you guys who know me best, um, it all comes back to kind of the function of the body and like understanding how any one area is related to the others and how they work as in, in, in unison, right? Um, so, you know, the hip flexors in general, um, you won't hear me use that term very often. Um, Brandon knows that, Mike knows that. Like I don't use that term very often because um, it, it's it's not that helpful of a, of a thing to consider in my opinion. Um, there are muscles that flex the hip but when we talk about hip flexors, you got to be more specific. Are you referring to iliopsoas specifically? Are you referring to a bunch of the other things that um, that actually flex the hip as well, which we're going to talk about? Uh, and then, by the way, are you actually 
just assuming that because they have limited hip extension that it's a hip flexor problem, um, or if there's hip flex weakness with hip flexion testing, it was a hip flexor problem. So let's try to put it all into context and see if we can kind of understand a little bit better about what's actually going on. I got one other little bonus for you guys. Uh, you guys know how much I love my my anatomy, so I'm gonna join uh, with my iPad and I got. Um, let me get this here. Four eight six. 5100. Oh shit. Did I get that wrong? 447. 486. 5100. Is that not it? Maybe I screwed that up. 5100. Ah, there we go. Boom. Alright, we're in. Uh, Boom. All right, Dan's iPad's in the building, um, and I'm going to share my screen because we can rip into uh, complete anatomy. All right, it might be a little laggy, but I think it's a good way to just kind of start the conversation, right? So, you know, I'm not going to look at this and just see the muscles. It's not how I operate. The first thing we got to do is grab these guys. Um, but if we talk about hip flexors, when you say iliopsoas is the one that we're referring to, like let's talk about other muscles that actually flex a hip, right? We've got TFL, we've got sartorius, we've got even to a certain degree all the adductors from pectineus to, depending on the actual line of pull, the adductors, adductor longus and and, uh, and brevis are going to contribute a little bit to, to hip flexion as well. So if there's a problem with hip flexion, and we're just thinking about the muscles that move it into flexion. We have to consider these. Of course, we've got rectus abdominis, or sorry, rectus uh, femoris, which is playing a big role. Um, and then we've got iliopsoas. Now, I had a little mistake and I said rectus abdominis, but if you think about the fascial attachments here, yes, we know that it kind of blends into the inguinal ligament, but let's consider the fascial attachments. Now, I don't know if this app kind of fails on this particular respect, but let's see if we've got some good fascia. Eh, not so much. Bottom line is, if we think about the fascia lata, as it's highlighted here, as well as the, the superficial fascia of the abdominal region, it doesn't just begin and end at one point, especially because it's not a bone that it's anchoring on, right? So the fascia is actually crossing over and passing from one area to the next. Um, and that's really relevant because um, what happens here is when we have engagement with one area, it's pulling all the way down in, in a continuous fashion with the anterior hip. So when that means when we engage the abdominal muscles, we're also creating tension that's going to lead us into hip flexion. So not only is it actively going to contribute to hip flexion, but it's going to stabilize the trunk when the hip goes into flexion. And the opposite is going to happen. If your leg is stable and you're bringing your trunk forwards, then the abdominal fascia blending into the anterior hip fascia is going to work as un in unison to create tension to allow that movement to happen. And it's going to therefore resist kind of eccentrically the opposite movement. So we just have to think about the anatomy in that perspective. We can't really isolate one specific thing. Actually, I just realized on my IGTV, I put the wrong zoom. Give me two seconds here, guys. Um, where go? S O two. So anyhow, you know what we have to consider in any of these kinds of situations 
is that we've got a lot more at our disposal when we have a real conversation. So you're not going to hear me use the term hip flex flexors because it's not specific enough. We really need to focus on all of the different regions and then more importantly, what the functional relationship between all of that actually is. And, uh, and that I think is, is where we need to get to with a lot of this stuff. And, and that's what so many people are, um, are, are lacking when we have these conversations. So taking a step back, now that we actually understand the anatomy, I might unshare for now and then come back to it. Um, what we want to consider in all these different cases is, um, is what is the problem that we're trying to address and what's the relationship. So hip flexor issues tend to be related to either a combination of lower back pain or anterior hip pain. I would say those are the things that we, we attribute most to hip flexors. When it comes to the anterior hip, um, there are so many other structures that we just we just highlighted, right? We've got all the peripheral nerves, the iliohypogastric. The, what's that? Or oh, someone's uh, echoing here for me. Um, the uh, the iliohypogastric nerves, the ilioinguinal nerves, the genofemoral nerves, the femoral is a big one. All the fascia I just described and a lot more there. We've got all the the origin of the rectus femoris, you know, very closely intersecting with the the. Uh, the capsule of the of the the acetabulum. So there's all these different structures that are actually playing a role. So when we just refer to hip flexors because it's anterior pain, it's like the most reductionistic thing we could possibly do. We're just like, oh, there's pain there. Okay, what muscle attaches there? Okay, great, that's the problem. Rather than thinking about why the problem is there and what the different contributing factors have been to why that area develops um, symptomatic problems. When it comes to the lower back, that's another one that's really common. People ask a lot about the hip flexors and and its relation to back pain. And as you know, maybe I'll you know pop on the uh, the app again just because it's it's an easy way to um, isolate here. Um, yeah, let's just you know let's isolate psoas. So T12 to L5, the attachment, right? Um, and so yeah, this is why we're immediately thinking about lower back pain because you've got pain in that area. You see the attachment. We know it's a pretty broad. Uh, significant muscle with a broad attachment along the transverse processes. And so we know it does influence what happens at the back. And it is one of the major areas that's going to contribute to absorbing and generating forces that are moving from the hip to the back and moving the back to the hip. Um, but at the same time, we have to not just blame a muscle and say it's fault, especially when, by the way, like look at that whole muscle belly. If I go back, how much of that can we actually address and influence? Like literally the only part we can touch, as I was mentioned in Rust before we started, is that tiny ass little piece there. So if we really believe that the psoas itself or the iliacus or the combination of the two are playing a big role, we're kind of shit out of luck when it comes to being able to really modify and influence them. And if they were just tight, for instance, then, you know, we, we, we'd have to really come up with a new strategy to be able to influence that and actually modify that tension in that area. Luckily for us, for those who use uh, techniques such as electroacupuncture that are going to influence the nerves going to that muscle, we've got a roundabout way that we can heavily influence that particular region. Uh, but at the same time, we have to think about whether it, it, that muscle is at fault to begin with. And that's when we can take a step back and look at, okay, when is the hip flexor traditionally kind of overloaded? And it's really only in extension. Most of the time that we think about people who have, um, you know, like kind of psoas related issues, it's like they sit too much. They don't stretch. They don't move. But if they're just sitting and they're not really challenging it all that much, we're probably not putting that much stress on that muscle. 
there's two ways that muscles get tight. One is from overuse and one is kind of from underuse. Overuse would be challenging it more than it can tolerate from a tensional standpoint, from a potentially metabolic standpoint or neurological standpoint. And that muscle responds by, by just generating more tension. It's like, screw it, I can't help. So all I've got to do is squeeze on, hold on for dear life, and hopefully that'll do the trick. Um, on the flip side, we can have muscles that are just not used, but that has to be for a really long period of time. You know, the use it or lose it thing we talk to our patients about. So we'd be talking in a situation there where, um, you know, it's been many, many years, a long period of time of immobility, not using certain ranges of motion, and so they lose it. But it happens on much more than a muscle level. It happens on a soft tissue connectivity level as well. And that's when we go back to the other soft tissues around the anterior hip, not just the hip flexor, the iliopsoas itself. So, oh, I lost my screen. Shit. Is it back? I think I lost it. Yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, so my, my point is when we're trying to, you know, allocate uh, blame to certain structures, first of all, we run into a lot of troubles, trouble when we go in anywhere in the body because of the functional attachments and the functional movements require so many different parts of the body to work simultaneously. We can't really blame one thing. So blaming psoas or blaming piriformis or blaming um, serratus or blaming upper fibers of traps, like we need to move beyond that and think more of a system level anyways. Um, but it's particularly obvious in these kinds of areas that we need to think a little bit more globally about the function of the region and think about how the abdominal muscles are stabilizing and allowing the hip to move more, more completely and more effectively. Um, thinking about the other tissues like the peripheral nerves here, like the femoral nerve, um, let me grab that bad boy, like the femoral nerve here. That, that provides a lot of useful information and, and is a major nerve trunk of the lower extremity. Like these guys right here. Look, look at this little nerve here. This is a genital femoral nerve. We've got a branch of the iliohypogastric over here and the lateral, or the lateral femicutaneous. The iliohypogastric has a branch that's a little bit more lateral. So all of these guys are going to play a role in the experience of symptoms that people encounter. And if we just blame one structure, we're going to miss the boat more often than not. Um, and so psoas is just another classic example where... It's not, it's just doing its job. It's trying to help out. But overload of that area is usually because of other problems. And it's our job to try to address it uh, and, and, uh, and understand it. And if we can do that, then we can come up with uh, a real understanding from a functional anatomy and a functional treatment standpoint that's going to be much more effective over time. So that's just a starting point. Um, I'm happy to, uh, to kind of go into a lot of different directions. Obviously, I can talk on this for a long time. So... Uh, let me know what you guys got. I don't know. There's like a way to put up hands and stuff like that, but I haven't figured that shit out yet. So, um, someone wave if you want to, if you want to ask a question, I guess and we'll start with that. Or don't, I guess you just want me to keep rambling. That's fine. No one wants to unmute themselves. Um, okay. So where can I go from here? Cause there's so many different directions here. Let me I'll, I'll ask questions. Okay? Yeah. What's up? Um, okay, what about, say, somebody with, like, anterior hip pain that um, is predominantly a runner? Where would your kind of mind go with that? So, at the end of the day, with anyone who's got an impact-based uh, activity, we have to just understand, first and foremost, the, the forces that are going through their body. We have to understand, um, for a runner with anterior hip pain that there's significantly more force going through their whole lower body than people who are just walking around going about their daily life. So first and foremost, the question of a runner's symptoms 
has to go to how are they absorbing primarily the impact forces of running, the reaction forces. So my first, that, that is the lens that I'm going to use when I start to assess that problem from start to finish. I'm going to look up the chain, watch them move, watch them walk, maybe watch them run depending on the space that I have and the, and the time that I've got and really try to analyze right away where the problem, where the force absorption problems are coming from. So that, that is like, that is next level. I'm doing a webinar for your hip. Um, so at the end of the day, that's, that's where I want to start is just before I get to the thing. And this is what the mistake that a lot of practitioners make. They're like, okay, what's going on with the hip? What are the structures around the hip I need to treat? And as soon as I hear runner, before I even heard what the symptom was, I'm like, okay, how are they absorbing forces? Unless you told me it was their shoulder or something. I'm thinking about their ability to, um, you know, maintain and absorb force through the arch of the foot. Um, what is their ankle dorsiflexion like? Um, what is their, you know, do they have full knee extension range of motion? Is there a problem there from an old injury? Um, what about the history of lower back discomfort or injury that might be creating dysfunction in proprioception of the area, of neuromotor control of the hip, of sensitization of the nerves that are, are, um, are generating some of the symptoms that they're experiencing. So before I even get to the actual area of their symptoms, I have to break down why this force absorption problem has occurred. And so that's, that's where I go. And it can take me in so many different directions, but you need to have that lens every single time. Like why is that um, developing as a problem? And then we can start to have a meaningful conversation. So let's say then we've cleared below the hip, for instance, in that patient. And we're looking at someone who is experiencing um, like anterior hip pain, was it like, actually give a specific case in mind? Like, is this an ongoing thing? Is it when they immediately start to run? Is it afterwards? Like, try to give me some context here. Uh, I was just saying, I was just asking in general. I mean, I find that I've seen a variety of people that have had anterior hip pain from running. Um, and every, like you said, it, like everyone looking up the chain, it, it, it depends from person to person, right? Yeah. Um, but Specifically, uh, like without with everything fine being like below, like knees fine, ankles fine. Yep. Um, I don't know. Maybe these people would probably have some kind of dysfunction with like testing of like hip flexion. There might be weakness or yep. um, restrict or like having like if you test like passively, they might have a ton of restrictions. Yes, uh, anterior. Yeah, so so in runners, obviously, you know, when we talk about force absorption and generation, for that matter, in running, the most effective, efficient strategy is through posterior chain, right? It's not. We see lots of weird patterns, but we look in the posterior chain. We look at plantar fascia, Achilles, calf, hamstring, glute, back, all to work in unison, and even the upper extremities, right? Rotation of the thoracic, extension and flexion of the shoulders, like all the way up the chain. We have to think about that stuff. So we, we must kind of at least know that those are what we're looking for. So if we're looking at a runner with hip-related pain, you know, and we clear things below, we're still wondering why can't they absorb forces? So we go to those force absorbers. We look for what's happening with hip extension, range of motion, and strength. And my guess is if someone is in that category, they're going to have a problem with either or both of those things. They're either going to be someone who has relatively poor uh, development or strength of the glute muscles, um, in which case they're finding alternate strategies to generate and absorb those forces, like using hip flexors, like using quads more, like using anterior hip or abdominals um, to swing, to force their hip 
through flexion rather than pushing off with the back leg, if that makes sense. The back leg is going to push forward while the, the front leg is going to go into hip flexion, right? If they can't push off well with the back foot, there's an alternate way to generate more force is to swing aggressively forwards into hip flexion. So they're likely overusing hip flexion. There can, there can be two concurrent or separate things. One is a generation problem with glute or posterior chain weakness somewhere. Um, and then the other one is going to be um, uh, just kind of you know, tightness in hip extension. So they physically can't get into that range of motion. So why they can't? Well, it could be deep restrictions in the anterior hip. It could be peripheral nerve sensitization that doesn't allow the body to get into that range of motion. It could be weakness in the abdominals that just they're trying to overpower and generate force through there. Um, and, and, and of course it could be, you know, iliopsoas related, but that would, I'd have to determine kind of what, which of those is relevant and which ones we want to try to address in a problem like that and, and, and go through the steps to make that happen. Um, there's the third, the third option, which is that they just move poorly. They may have all of the requisite strength and range of motion, but they can't put it all together. So in that, that particular scenario, there's someone who... Um, has, you know, you watch them walk pretty good or you watch them walk and they're just kind of funky movers, right? Like they don't have like a nice steady gait. They like got extra wiggle to them. They're thoracic or through their hips or their feet are out a little bit. And by itself, you know, those are things we see in lots of people. But when you increase the mileage and the physical demands and the forces required to be absorbed, that's when problems can start to arise. Um, so perhaps that translates into way that they run. Maybe they're a new runner or maybe they run sporadically or you watch them just squat and just do functional movements in the, in the clinic. And you're like, hey, you run how much on that, on those legs, on this body. So sometimes you can just get a sense of the way that they move. They're not a good mover and they're participating in an activity that their body doesn't have long-term resilience in. And they may have been running for a while. They may pick it up six months ago, a year ago. Um, and they just, you know, they're, they're, they've been okay until this point, but you can really describe that as like a Jenga tower that was shaky to begin with. And you've kept removing blocks. You've kept putting more stress on it. It's not going to get easier over time. You're just reaching that threshold where symptoms start to arise. And so it's our job to try to um, identify that, communicate that effectively, and then translate that piece into, all right, so what? So how can we give them the fundamentals to be able to address that in a long-term kind of meaningful way. And, and that I think is, is an important piece of the puzzle um, in, in those particular patients. In other patients, it's a matter of strength or neuromotor activation, which can be electroacupuncture, can be all sorts of different functional movements and exercises to, to try to create um, changes in that respect. And with restrictions, whatever kinds of manual work, hold, relax um, strategies we can engage. And then bigger picture than that, understand why tightness developed. If we can understand why tightness developed, then we might go even further back. It might be because of poor lumbar control that they've had to generate more hip flexion there because they don't have control over what's happening through their trunk. So maybe we need to do a more trunk stability work, dead bug type work, um, anterior core stuff like plank and, and different versions of that that are going to improve the stability of the trunk primarily. So we kind of have to put them into the category that fits, not, not put them in, observe which category they fit in and then narrow down our specific treatment to what they need from there. So if they're a poor mover, if there's someone who's restricted, or there's someone who's weak, identify where that is, what we need to do to address that, and then monitor them as they slowly increase their activity and, and, and recognize what that 
that process looks like. So that, from a clinical reasoning point, is where a lot of people get messed up because they're like hip flex in, in someone with knee pain. I got to stretch the psoas. I got to dig into their abdominals um, and try to try to influence that way, which which is an interesting point because um, that's a really common one. People will do a lot of like release stuff for um, for psoas, and it's an interesting um, it's an interesting one because we know that you like the people who say. I don't know if you guys have seen the, um, there was one, it went around, I don't know, six months ago. It was one of these dissections and people, they, they had a, a cadaver and it was an embalmed cadaver and they were flipping through the layers. Did you see this video, guys, anyone? And they were showing like, how can you get to psoas when you've got all these layers to go through? Now, the problem with that is, with that, 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 um, that particular video is they were using an embalmed cadaver. So it was basically like, all these leather layers and thick, rigid structures um, that they were trying to go through. Embalmment process basically like creates a lot of rigidity in the tissue for most of you who did dissections in school at some point in time. The reality is, is that the body, when you do an unembalmed dissection, as I've done many times, um, or just in reality with the body, everything moves. We can squish things around and get things out of the way and things sink down as you apply pressure. So you can actually touch or through all the different layers so as through the abdomen i'm not saying you can't i believe you can the question i have is is it a viable way to treat the problems that we just identified earlier and that's where i don't think it is at all so if we're doing that and we're touching it it's like imagine imagine how deep that is and the amount of pressure you can apply now imagine i did the exact same technique on rectus femoris would I feel confident in any way, shape, or form that that amount of pressure would create a lasting change in that muscle? Probably not. It might, even temporarily, it might not. Because, you know, I'm not like I'm digging in. I can't like rip my thumb into, into a psoas like I might be able to do in rectus femoris. And even then, I probably wouldn't have a lasting effect. So it's anyone who happens to get effects by doing that are likely having reflexive effects through some other mechanism. We know that the peripheral nerves I can show you on the app later if you guys are interested, that provide innervation to the anterior uh, trunk, the anterior rami, come off of the thoracolumbar junction and the lumbar spine. What does that mean? It means that when we are touching that area, stimulating it, we're stimulating the nerves, having at least a temporary effect on the nervous system as it relates to that region of the lower back. So we can be having an effect on the lower back symptoms or tightness temporarily by us digging into the abdomen whether we used a lot of pressure or a little bit of pressure. And that's something that we can, we can definitely see. Um, the other piece is we talked about rectus abdominis, for instance, stabilizing and creating uh, a stable base for us to generate hip flexion. And that could be part of the problem. So by us doing trigger point release almost, by us temp doing kind of temporary pressure through trigger points or areas of the muscle, we can potentially influence the activation of those muscles in the short term, which can create a short term change in pain short-term change in strength, maybe even, uh, but again, probably not having the lasting effect that we would desire, um, especially when we don't really understand. If, if that's what we, th if we think we're going to psoas and we're getting an effect and we're blaming psoas for the, the problem and the result, our lack of understanding of what's actually happening with the body is limiting our ability to treat the true nature of the problem. And, and that happens a lot. You know, as I said, piriformis syndrome is a good example of that. Uh, upper fibers of traps are a good example of that. So we, the better we understand what's actually happening from a functional anatomy and a functional movement standpoint, 
uh, the better we can pick the treatment that's going to help the patient in front of us. And then we need the clinical decision-making process that allows us to accurately detect what's going on with that patient so that we can apply our knowledge of functional anatomy and movement to get a complete picture so we can move forward with most effective treatment. That, in a sense, is what we're, we're trying to accomplish. That make sense? Yes. Um, so that was a long way to answer a runner with hip flexor pain, but uh, I think I did it justice. Um, anyone else got any uh, any any questions? Yeah, can I just ask? Um, yeah, what's up? Yeah, so I was just gonna say that um, in saying everything, you know, looking at the whole system and the functionality, like I'm just curious, how long are your assessments typically with with patients? So I, I usually do, like my standard right now is two hours, which is not reasonable for most of you guys, and that's okay. But you can do as much of that in the first hours as, as possible too. Um, what I want you to recognize is, and, and I saw there's some questions here from Eileen I'm going to get to um, as well. But um, what I want you to realize is that you can you don't have to do everything in the first session it's really common for us to have this idea that we need to have all of the answers right now um, but what happens is when you start to narrow things down from simple things like watching them move and you've got a little routine of checking the major pieces of the puzzle you can save yourself some time by having a, a, a regular routine so for instance if i use that runner as an example and let's pick the one who moves poorly um, the one who maybe has all the requisite range and is actually the strength is okay, but moves poorly. So that's someone where we, you know, by watching them walk, I might pick up two or three little things. Okay, feed her out a little bit, but lots of people have that, but I'm going to keep that in mind. Um, poor control of the trunk. Okay, well, maybe that leads to me thinking about rectus abdominis, rotational control. Okay, so that's on my radar. So you can almost, if you want to go through this process as best as you can, like write a couple notes as you're going along. I have a whiteboard on my clinic I use sometimes. Uh, and I certainly use that a lot early on, but just boom, make a couple notes on the functional movement side. Okay, so now I just gotta keep those in my mind. Get them on the table, or you know, watch them squat, pick up a couple of the cues, wow, they really have poor knee control, but on both sides, okay. So now I'm wondering, maybe they're just weak all over, because they just don't have control, let me, let me find out. Um, you know, some single leg balance, other oh, balance is okay, fine. Now you get them on the table, and in the span of three to five minutes, you should be able to look at strength and range of motion of most of the joints of the lower body. You should be able to go through ankle, knee, hip, flip them over, hip, hamstrings. You should be able to have that routine. We do this every day. Hopefully you've got a good strategy to accomplish that if you don't um, keep working on it because it's, it's, it's important for you to have um, a reliable test that you can use that gives you real information that you can do in a timely manner. And then what's gonna happen is from that, you're gonna have this was weak, this was strong, this was pretty good. And if, again, writing it down early gives you some strategies. Um, but right then and there, just from that alone, I now have range of motion strength of all those joints. Where I see weakness or old injuries that they mention in the subjective history, I've already got a little asterisk on their one ankle that they injured before, or the fact that they've had lower back pain before, or the fact that um, this one hip going into flexion was really restricted and it happens to be the side where their pain is. Like I'm going to make those kinds of notes, but I'm not going to come to a final conclusion about what's actually going on there. I'm going to use it as part of the puzzle as we get closer to a conclusion of the most important things to treat. So essentially our process with assessment should be to come up with the series of things that need to be treated and use our clinical experience to pick the highest order ones. You also 
can save some of it for a future session. So this is the, the, the balance sometimes. If you are running out of time and there are a patient who really needs value in that session right away, they're one of those people who like a good explanation isn't gonna buy them in for the second session, you need to do some sort of treatment for them, then you can use your time a little bit more effectively, cut out a, little, a few things you know, I've gotta look at this later, but I'm gonna start here so that I can show them I know what I'm doing. Um, and for other people, I find if you do a thorough job of assessing them, explaining what you found, and the logic, then you're going to be able to get the buy-in because you're like, this is the problem. I know we didn't have time today, but this A, B, and C are the most important things that are going on with your problems. Here are two or three things you can do on your own. When you come back next time, we're gonna start on A, and then we're gonna go to B, and then I'm gonna give you things, you know, new exercises for A and B, and we're gonna go on in this direction, so on and so forth. So it's all about kind of having this overarching strategy of your assessment and figure out what goal you need to get to with your patient. Sometimes it's treatment, sometimes it's an explanation. Sometimes they don't care if you touch them, they're just, you know the patients who just wanna to talk to you for 40 minutes and they just wanna be heard, and at the end of it you're like, trust me, I got this, and they're like, thank God, I can't believe I found you. There's people like that too. So you pick your specific goal that's relevant for the patient to come back to the sec for the second visit, and you deliver on that, but the primary goal really should be for you to understand the problem as best as possible. And it starts by collecting the right information in the subjective and in the objective part of the assessment. Does that answer your question? Yep. All right, sweet. Um, Eileen had a question. Um, is there a quick functional ass assessment you use to rule in or rule out true hip flexor issues? Um, the short answer is no. Um, I look at everything in as, as a group. So I try not to just be like, oh, well, this is definitely not that, but rather look as a, as a whole. But that being said, if I see someone who's got um, great hip flexion range of motion, great hip extension range of motion, great hip flexion strength, and great hip extension strength, the hip flexors are probably not an area, and the anterior hip is not an area I'm gonna spend as much time with. There are some exceptions, um, but if they've got really good hip flexion and extension, range and strength, then they're gonna be someone who I'm gonna focus a little bit less on as we go through um, through the process in that particular area. Again, ruling in or out hip flexive issues is not my priority. It's just trying to narrow down the, fa the factors that are there. So there might be, eh, you know what? They could use a little bit more hip flexion strength. Or you know what, hip extension is a little bit limited. Okay, so there's something there. I don't rule in and out most things completely. I just knock it further down in my priority list. And if I don't ever get to it, that's fine. But I move it down if, if, if I feel like it's, um, if it's adequately functional to match the demands of the patient. So if it feels like, you know what, they don't do that much activity, they're just trying to go over their daily life, their hip flexion strength or their hip flexor, flexor function doesn't need to be the same as my football players. Um, so we just have to keep in mind that we have to tie the, the functional status of any region or the body as a whole to the functional demands of their activity and make sure that those two line up. Um, what would we got? Next question. Uh, last 20% of function. So history, uh, history of runner, now runs 20 minutes, pre-symptoms, findings, pain only, initiation of hip flexion, tenderness and thickening palpable over the anterior hip joint, good range of motion and strength, ex-dancer, one-year runner. Ah, perfect. Um, so 
that was exactly the case that we, you know, the, the scenario that I talked about earlier. That's someone who probably, you know, someone who's a dancer, they move in a very specific way. They're trained to move in a very certain way that is not particularly functional to things other than dancing. It's amazing for dancing, but it's not great for anything non-dancing. Um, and so between being on your toes, between the posture you need to generate, um, between the activation of certain muscles in certain ways, the flexibility and the overload on certain tissues that are now more flexible than usual, um, that's number one, a big problem for dancers. Number two problem for dancers um, is the idea that range of motion is only valuable as long as you have the functional strength through the whole range. So if you have lots of range, if you have more, if you have more range, it's better than having less range. A hundred percent, it's better to have more range than less. But there's a catch. You need to also have the functional strength to stabilize through that entire range. If we don't, problems occur. So what that ultimately means is that for someone who's a dancer, period, we automatically have to think about their deficits in neuromotor control through their range and the fact that they are not used to moving in that kind of way. They went from one type of impact to another one. So likely the dancer is someone who fits into maybe, you know, X dancer one year run. I don't know the age, but my guess is they fit right into that third category of probably not moving well enough, generating and absorbing forces in the running mechanics necessary to address uh, to, to be able to handle the kind of running that they're actually doing. Um, sounds like she's running, uh, they're running 20 minutes now before symptoms, which is great. So slowly increasing tolerance is good. Um, mechanics, um, trying to break down what area is lacking. A lot of dancers have really shitty dorsiflexion. Dorsiflexion is important to, to absorb and generate forces because of the tension on the Achilles to the calf. So problems there, big issue for runners trying, uh, dancers trying to run. Um, not surprised that the range of motion and strength is great. That's literally the case I was describing to you earlier. Um, not a 19 year old. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So dancing for a long time now starting running like that's a hundred percent what I think is, uh, is going on and is a really good um, example of something I highlighted earlier. So for, for, uh, for the dancer, you know, um, it, it's developing the fundamentals of movement of generating and absorbing forces in that way. Um, working on dorsiflexion range of motion, working on proper core control without a lot of hyperextension because that's a really common hyperextension to the lumbar spine is going to add more duress on the anterior hip. And if it's already thickening and, and um, uh, tenderness and stuff like that on the anterior hip, chances are that was a problem beforehand. My guess is that was a problem through dancing in all those years as well. And it's just now exacerbated in a different way. Uh, I have a patient right now I've worked with over the last year or so. She's a high school runner, really talented, used to be a gymnast had a lot of hip-related issues from, from uh, gymnastics, now switched into running and is a fantastically talented runner, but her problem was, and still continues to be a little bit, the anterior hip region. Why? From the beating up and the flexibility required, and her training needs to increase in terms of generating and absorbing force in that area. So it, again, isn't really a hip flexor problem. The anterior hip-related soft tissue problems need to be addressed. Um, but I wouldn't blame the hip flexors. I'd blame the functional patterns starting from dorsiflexion, thinking about lumbar control especially. Um, and when those improve, uh, everything else will kind of fall into line and you slowly progress, especially in the last 20% of that function. Um, yeah, that, that, one's a, that one's a good case. And, and I can see why that's challenging. Because you have a good athlete, good strength, and good range of motion. And when you get someone like that, your instinct is, um, well, what the hell's going on? Their strength is there, the range of motion. Like, what is the problem? but it's actually the way that they move. And, and that's why that functional assessment part 
of our assessments needs to be emphasized and understood every single time. Um, anyone else? No? Past ankle problems. Yep, absolutely. Uh, that's a guarantee for any dancer, right? I know there's a lot of ankle stuff there. So with this dorsiflexion, her proprioception is going to be better than most people's. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but at the same time, we, uh, we can't totally... Uh, um, ignore that side of things because it's a different type of movement. So training proprioception to be really good at standing on one leg and being all the way up on your, on point is very different than the proprioception needed to create the activation of everything from tip post to support the arch to the entire kinetic chain as they're generating absorbing force to the running movement. So you can't um, just assume that because I can stand on one leg that all the proprioception in that ankle is uh, as good as it can be. We have to kind of go a little bit deeper, especially in those ones who can quote unquote beat our tests. You know, there's people who happen to do a bunch of this one thing and, you know, say they've done a lot of pistol squats and use that to assess single leg control. If they've done that for a long time, they might be able to beat the test. And if they can beat the test, well then it's not useful for us to have real information. We need to adapt our test and assessment based on what they can do. So that's a little bit more of an advanced thing to know when and how to do that or when to just get an eye be like, mm, this is too easy for you. It shouldn't be this easy. And you just switch it a little bit and they fail miserably. Um, that can be something that we have to, uh, we have to keep in mind. Uh, Sarah, how do you know how to prioritize? Sorry, that didn't come in fully. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm Nostal's friend. Oh, yeah. It's okay from here. What's up? Um, yeah, I was going to ask, how would you know how to prioritize if there's a lot of things going on? So, like, you see tightness in the adductors, there's meniscus problems, there's, like, tightness, uh, like, they feel tightness on the lateral side of the hip as well, so in the abductors, like, and there's no issues with the ankle mobility or um, there's no issues with mobility in any joints, um, so but it's more like everything around the hip and the knee are kind of like one after the other over the time are getting tighter. And it's just like, how would you know how to start? Like, I know, okay, like you should start mobilizing your hip flexors, you should start mobilizing this and that. But it's just, I feel like there has to be like a kind of green, red and yellow kind of stepwise kind of approach that I can't figure out. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's an important concept and I'm gonna, I can try to use your, your example there specifically, but I'm going to take a, a quick step back from it and then we can hone back in. Um, our goal of our assessment, as I mentioned earlier when I was chatting, when I said uh, something uh, related to Darren's question, is um, what are the priority things we want to treat? What is our hierarchy of, of things that are important? Excuse me. What is our best guess in the number, in the, the priority of things we need to treat? And essentially, at the end of the day, we can make really strong, educated guesses about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that we need to treat for any given problem. What we need to do is then start treating in an order that will allow us to confirm that hierarchy. Sometimes that means treating number one first, and if it doesn't work, move on. Sometimes it means treating number three first, because three is either number one or number three. It's either really important or not important at all. So if I treat it and it creates a big change, great. Well, that's the direction I need to go in. And if it doesn't make a difference, then okay, well, it probably is down the list. Now I'm going to start with number one. So you can kind of have to, you have to play around with this a little bit, and there's not one way to do it. 
But the goal of this process is to help your future process. So you want to have enough information that you can sit there and say, given what I, given what I know about this patient, I can extrapolate this to someone who looks like them in the future. So you need to be able to get the information back out about whether it worked or not. That requires reassessment the same way you assessed at the beginning. And to not just with the goal of not just patting yourself on the back and saying, I did a great job, but like, did I, do I understand how I went from point A to point B? I went from pain to no pain or pain to less pain or flexibility to more flexibility. Like, do I understand that this mechanism, that this input created this output? That's a level that you want to try to get to ultimately. That's going to create your clinical experience a lot faster over time. Um, so that is kind of the, the, our goal of the assessment is not just to pick what the problem is. That's the big mistake we seem to be taught to do. What is the diagnosis? What is the box that we're going to put this patient in? And the reality is what we need to do is say, what are the series of dysfunctions in this person that are contributing to the symptoms they're experiencing? And if I can come up with the, the, the how they developed it and what the major contributing factors are, I can start to eliminate those contributing factors in a sequential order once I understand it well. So that is our goal of our assessment, and anyone who tells you otherwise is severely mistaken. If we go back to someone who's got a bunch of specific issues around the hip and the knee and all that kind of stuff, again, it goes back to something, the first thing I said about the runner, force absorption and generation. Why is this area taking a beating? It's already diminished, but like, is there something contributing to that? Was there an old injury? Was there something? We need to understand the why. But next, we kind of have to go through that process of like, what's the most glaring thing? Or what is the most, um, you know, almost the thing that stands out the most. Sometimes it's not the biggest weakness or the most tight thing. It's like, huh, of all the things I would have expected this one to be better. And it's, and it's, and it's not better. Why is that? Or... Um, you know, say there's a lot of weakness, but there's equal weakness on the other side. Well, I'm going to care less about the weakness, but hmm, really interesting how tight you are in external rotation on this side versus the other side. Oh, didn't realize that. Patellar mobility. There's another example. Okay. You know, so everything's going on and everything, you know, tightness here, weakness there, yada, yada, yada. The patella is like crazy stuff versus the other side. Like, why is that part of the problem when it would, you wouldn't expect it to be on that side or um, you know, there's puffiness in the post, in the popliteal fossa. Like what's going on there? Is there some fusion there? Is there like, what's on the posterior chain that there's a problem? Is there an old injury? Is there a meniscus problem there? Like we kind of have to, we don't know the answer always what the number one thing is and how to prioritize. It's not always, this is it, but rather we want to come up with that list as best as we can. And then we have to test our hypotheses. That is, that is a, the methodology that we really want to try to have. Um, and as I said, if we, treat, if we test, treat, and then retest, we get information about patients like that. When we do this thing to them, this is the result. And if you do that enough times every single day, we accumulate enough cumulative experience that we can make quicker decisions about what is going on and what to do next. So it's, it's no, there's no magical, this is what you do in this scenario. Um, there are some specific cases, but you'd have to lay out the full patient case for me to be able to tell you exactly what to do in that case because two people with the exact same series of symptoms have something very unique about them and if we can identify what that is it'll open up a whole uh, realm to to figure out what's going on next all right i got one more question here from my lead and then we're gonna we'll wrap it up uh do i see jujitsu fighters frequent complaints of lower back pain and shoulder pain usually from submissions I frequently assume it's due to ground game and being in the fetal position. Hips are also externally rotated often. 
So it creates an active shortening of the hip flexors and lengthening of the adductors. What else do I need to think about? Um, good, good question. Uh, I've definitely worked with jujitsu fighters and they spend a lot of time on their backs. They spend a lot of time gripping down. It, they're very anterior. If you see a jujitsu fighter, they're very anteriorly developed with very little posterior. So just from that alone, we know that whatever training they're doing outside of, of, of rolling, outside of training, is any gym stuff they're doing, any running they're doing, their day-to-day -day life, this imbalance is gonna be there to some degree or another. So their posterior chain, relatively speaking, is gonna be a problem that we can start with. Um, and from there, you know, you kind of are asking a little bit about lower back pain. Um, lower back pain is probably not so much from submissions. It's from dysfunction in balance between those, those, uh, the, the trunk, whether they're uh, spending a lot of time in flexion, uh, a lot of weird kind of rotational forces that are experiencing that are putting trauma on the actual lumbar spine and the tissues around it. Um, and then, and then also, like I said earlier, um, imbalance in the posterior chain, a lot of developed tightness because of the increased tension that they get constantly anteriorly. They're limited in hip extension range of motion. They're limited in ex neck extension range of motion. Uh, they're, they're limited in shoulder range of motion, which creates that vulnerability um, to, uh, to, to kind of some of the submissions uh, as well. When it comes to submissions, yeah, we can't, we can't do a lot about it. It's the nature of the sport. We just have to kind of roll with that and, and, and tr treat every joint with as much resilience as we possibly can. Um, there definitely is an active shortening over time for those people, whether it's the hip flexors or the abdominal fascia, uh, even the adductors uh, to a certain degree, um, depending on what position that they're getting into, they, they, they may find alternative ways. For instance, they could have tight adductors and use more lumbar rotation and trunk rotation to get those hips up into those deep positions. Um, but generally hip extension is, is a big problem for them and strength and range of motion. So that's where a lot of the lower back um, and functional problems um, for them come from outside of the training realm, outside of the on the mat stuff, because they're also doing gym stuff and they're probably beating themselves up in the wrong way. And then last piece with, with jujitsu, with fighters of any kind, they 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 don't complain. They just suck it up. Oh yeah, you know, it hurts a little bit. I'll wrap it, I'll tape it, I'll jump back in, I'll heat afterwards, I'll stretch afterwards. So by the time they're actually complaining and it's significant enough that they're coming in, they've already experienced pretty significant dysfunction to the level that um, needs to be peeled layer by layer. And, and I don't expect quick changes with them because they don't take time off. And by the time they come in, there's a, a, a significant accumulation of problems. Um, okay, Kevin, last question. Uh, can you give your insight into uh, patients with end range flexion and internal rotation of the hip pain? So they're in flexion and internal rotation. That's where they're getting that pinching on the front of the hip. Is that what you mean? Um, it can be a couple different things. It can be a structural thing, depending on the end feel and the range of motion and the, their anatomy. Um, so it can be capsular and something within the capsule. Um, but a lot of times it can be the, the structures that are resisting that movement, which for the most part are going to be tissues on the lateral side, glute me, glute min, that are going to be under tension in that position. Tension in the lateral hip can contribute heavily to that. So if you're talking about why there's a limitation in the range of motion, um, or creating some impingement type symptoms, a lot of times it's a lateral hip as well. There can be some hip flexor related dysfunction there as well, whether it's iliopsoas or rectus femoris, which has an attachment that goes right up into the, the hip joint essentially. Um, so the structural tension there can contribute depending on the athlete and the sport. 
I work with a buddy who, for a while, who is um, a professional mountain biker. And because they do so much powerful hip flexion, he would have a lot of anterior hip impingement type problems. And so we did a lot of really deep work, manual, acupuncture, otherwise. But we didn't uh, on the anterior hip. But we also considered all the stuff in the lateral and the posterior chain as well and the, the abdominal region. So we made sure that we did all of it. The last reason we need to consider that is because of the peripheral nerves related to the area. I showed you the lateral femoral cutaneous, I showed you the general femoral, I showed you the iliohypogastric. So these peripheral nerves that are, and the femoral of course, that are traversing that region can become sensitized. So a lot of times it's not a structural problem, it's just irritation in that area that can be improved with manual work, with heat, with some lacrosse ball work, and then identifying why the problem was there from weakness in hip rotation stability, to poor control with squat and single leg movements, to poor core control, but we can address on that level too. So we don't just focus on, on why it's limited there, we have to think about how that happened in the first place, as well as a local component on the soft tissue, the muscle, and the nerve standpoint. Sounds good? All right, guys, let's uh, leave it there. I'm gonna start doing this a bit more regularly, at least, uh, at least once a week, if not a little bit more, so stay tuned. Uh, I'm gonna do my best. I'm gonna try to reach out to you guys individually. If you can send me, if you can, if you don't already follow me on Instagram, please do. I'm gonna ask for two things. I'm gonna ask for um, one, um, you know, what you found most useful, what your big takeaway was from today, and two um, other topics you'd love me to speak about. So if you guys can do me a favor and do those two things, I would really, really appreciate it. I'm hoping to do more of this exact same thing, and I need your feedback from that to make sure that I create the stuff that you're going to value. So thanks a lot for spending some time. Happy Easter, and I'll talk to you guys soon.